Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. I want to tell you a story, and it starts with kind of a song. So bear with me. I'm going to stop here because we don't have 15 minutes for me to just go through this. Does anyone have any idea where that comes from? I think, I think no one, the tune, anything sounds familiar? Wow, Hasidic guy holidays really are different. Okay. This is a piece, um, and I was talking with Rabbi Shmuley before, and it has kind of been stuck in my head since the Israeli elections, actually. We're not going to talk about that, contrary to popular belief. But it's high holiday prayers. And the reason why I want to start with that, because almost every year, actually not almost, literally every year for the last eight years, whenever I hear that tune, or any tune that reminds me of the high holidays, there's a story that comes to mind. Eight years ago, my last year, my last Rosh Hashanah, my last high holidays in the Hasidic community, I was during services, a total rebel, and sitting outside and speaking with a friend. Now, that was a friend that I have been talking a lot. We were friends from the time that I was in rabbinical school, and we were talking a lot. That friend was one of the only people who um, at least outwardly presented as male that I ever got along with. So I was suspected. I usually didn't get along with Hasidic men. So I already suspected that something is going on. For the first time, though, I opened up myself a bit. I think that happens when it's 5 in the afternoon. You have been in shul and synagogue since 8 in the morning, and it's Rosh Hashanah, and everything is so scary, and you're talking about life and death and whatever. I was talking a bit about my own identity, and my friend also opened up. A few months later, I started on my journey out of the community. I haven't heard from them for the next few years, until a few years later when I heard that, and I'm sorry if anyone gets triggered by that, but um, the, the story was that they died in an accident, which I, I, I'm not sure what exactly happened, but that was a story. It was an experience of someone who had a similar experience to me with an identity. I don't want to go into too many details and was living just like me in a community that, where that was impossible. In a community 
that when I came out to my father, a leader in the Hasidic community, his first reaction, one of his first reactions, after first making a very sexist remark, was, do you think that this, referring to me being transgender, is okay with Judaism? Now, how many of you would identify as Jewish in one way or another? I honestly don't care how religious or not religious you are. That's a lot of you. I think all of you know that we are at a temple, like a synagogue or temple, and we're here with a Beit Midrash, which is probably the most Jewish thing you can get. And the reality is that for me walking into this room tonight is the strongest answer that I can have to a story like that. The strongest message that I can have to a friend of mine that had passed away from the world, either directly or indirectly as a result, from their own struggle with identity and not being able to ever talk about it. The strongest answer that I have to my dad, and pardon my language, the middle finger that I can give him, when he's trying to tell me that this is not okay with Judaism, is a room like this. You are, I like, they, they might think whatever they want, but the reality is I have given hundreds of speeches in Jewish communities alone. Not, okay, maybe not all of them in Jewish, but in a lot of Jewish communities. And the fact that we can do that, and not just in Jewish communities, you see it all around the world in, in different religious communities. But obviously for me, personally, this is just being here is winning. Just being here is sending such a strong message that we can create a community, we can create an environment where it's not just possible to be who you are and be okay with it, but where people will show up to support you. Now, I want to say one final thing, and then we're going to jump into the fun parts. Each and every single one of you that are here tonight are, in my opinion, activists. Just by being here tonight, even if you don't think about it, you are sending a message to other people who might be in this room, to people who might be watching online, to people who will hear about this tomorrow and in weeks and years to come, that at a synagogue, at a temple, people are gathering, and there was a room full of people who are coming together to say that we want to hear what it means to be trans and be Jewish, what it means to be queer and be Jewish. We are here to celebrate who you are. So I know you were all clapping before for me. Can we clap for all of you? Because I think all of you being here is already some of the strongest things that you can do. In the Hasidic community, and I think in a lot of religious communities, and regardless of how you believe in that, before the high holidays, people always look on a way to do more good deeds. Whatever that is because you want to end the year on a high note, whatever is because you want to be a better person, or if you believe that God or the divine or the Shekhinah, or whatever you do or don't believe in, might judge you. So in my opinion, you all have something else to add to your docket for this Rosh Hashanah, for this high holiday. So here's what I want to do. Um, actually, I have another question for you. I'm going to get three answers, okay? I can't take more because we're never going to leave here tonight. But why are you here? It's Thursday night. Are some of you going to host a Shabbat dinner this week, tomorrow night? I mean, if anyone is, you probably have better things to do or in general. Really, you have nothing better to do on a Thursday night than to come here and listen to me talk. Come on. Why are you here? I mean that in a serious way, though. Like, I really want to know. I really don't like podiums, in case you can't tell by the lack of a podium. I also don't like notes. I don't speak out of notes. I have a PowerPoint maybe following some points, but mostly I want to have a conversation with you. So I want to hear what you want to talk about. Go ahead. I'm fascinated by hearing your, by, I want to hear your story. Great. I'm fascinated. I've read a lot of books about the Hasidic community. And as you stated already, it's not usual for somebody to be coming from the Hasidic community doing what you're doing. Great. We will cover parts of it at least. 
Thank you. Okay, let's do these two. No, yeah, go ahead. Yes. Um, I'm very interested in the difference between uh, transgender and transsexual. <coughs> That's an interesting question, actually. And for the majority of people right now, today, just prefer transgender, and people, transsexual is almost out of use. We can talk about that. I think this would actually be better if we talk about it just the two of us. Yeah, we can talk about that later. Yeah, okay. go ahead. You would have loved to think earlier today because that's exactly what we covered. And I always tell people, I don't care how religious or not religious you are. I don't care if people, if you, if you keep kosher all the way, you'd bake in for breakfast every day, every morning. One thing that is very clear is that Judaism can be very inclusive. Some people will be using Judaism or Christianity or Islam or whatever religion or whatever God they're going to come up with on why it's wrong. But we can just as much use it for positivity, use it for inclusivity, and we will cover parts of this. These are great ideas. Okay, one more? Go ahead. Um, I noticed in one of the articles about you, um, you had mentioned, or they had mentioned footsteps. Yeah. And I watched the program, I believe, on Netflix. One of us. One of us. And I was so thrilled to find that there was an organization that was there yeah. to help with the transition, and I yeah. just we are going to talk a bit. It's going to come up a bit later. But yes, footsteps is, a, for me, it was life-saving. I got to move along, so we'll try. And then for the rest of the evening, I will ask questions at certain points, and obviously we can answer that. I tend to talk quite fast. So if at any point I say something that you don't understand, questions, let's leave Q&A questions to the end. But if I say anything that doesn't make any sense to you or you don't understand, you can stop me, and I will try to clarify it. Now, here's what I want to do first. I want to show a video. I call this getting the exotic parts of my life out of the way. Instead of me speaking for the next hour just about me, I don't like doing that. I'll show you a video. It's a video that was produced by a guy, and if any of you might know him, anyone who follows politics might, his name is Preet Barretta. He was the US District Attorney for the Southern District of New York, the mother of the federal court, so to speak, in New York for like 20 years until he was, he was mysteriously fired by someone for reasons that are, yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, and then he started an organization called CAFE, and two years ago, he gathered a group of 100 young activists and, and people. You can read the description up there. Um, and I did a video um, with them that covers part of my life, part of my activism. And hopefully that will answer a lot of the basics, and we can move on to focus on the Hasidic community, on gender and Judaism. Great. Now, what is the Hasidic community? Can I get three people to tell me what you know? There's no right or wrong answer on this, and I know there's so many misconceptions out there. Some might be right, some might be wrong. What do you know about the Hasidic community? Anyone? Go ahead. They're very religious. Yeah, that's the understatement of the evening. <laughs> yeah. Though I would say that the religious part, I think they're more culty than religious, which is important because, hey, listen, I have a lot of negative experiences with religion, but I don't think we should let them control what it means to be religious or Jewish. But you're definitely right in the conventional sense of the word, yes. Anyone else? Go ahead. Very bound in tradition. Very bound in tradition, yes. Very self-selecting which traditions they decide to follow, but yes, 
Very accurate. There was someone here? Yes, go ahead. They wear long coats and beards and they wear pants and very, you can recognize them immediately. I call that 18th century Declaration of Independence kind of clothes. <laughs> like literally, if you look in the back of the $2 bill, you know the painting from Declaration of Independence? The socks and the things that they wear looks exactly like what my family wears. Yes. I'm going to try to move along, sorry, um, because I don't even know until when we have. 8.30, great, but there's still a lot of material. Um, I would love to hear from all of you, but we'll have to try to move along. Now, all of these are quite accurate. I tend, almost every time I get some misconceptions on the Hasidic community, some things that people think they know about it, some of them are accurate, some of them aren't. So here is my very brief pitch on my experience growing up Hasidic. And when I say my experience, I'm very careful of that because there's no one size fits all. There's no one size fits all about anything. There's no one way of being trans. There's no one way of being queer. There's no one way of being lesbian. There's no one way of liking red clothes. There's no one way for anything in life. And everyone has their own experience. However, I do want to say that the way I grew up, my Hasidic community was not in any way unique within the Hasidic community. There are differences. There are differences between neighborhoods, the differences between the sects, sects. A good example just off the bat is Chabad, which is a whole different ball game than the way I grew up. I like to divide them between the Hasidic people who wear fur hats on Shabbat and the people who don't. They're just very different, and that is important to keep in mind for the rest of the evening. I can only talk from my own experience, from the experience of working with other people, but it's not in any way the only way of growing up Hasidic. So a few uh, bullet points. Contrary to what Hasidic people might want us to believe, that the way they are living is how they've been living for hundreds of thousands of years, I was told that Moses, Moshe in the desert, wore a strimal, which is a really stupid idea to wear a strimal in the, in the desert, but that's what we're told to believe. And I don't know how many people actually believe that, even in the Hasidic community, but the message has always been, this is the authentic way of being Jewish. Now, I don't think there's an authentic way of being Jewish. One of my favorite teachers, and probably the person that I would consider my teacher, uh, Reb Zalman Shechter Shalomi, who is the father and founder of Jewish Renewal, and he used to say, the only authentic Judaism is the Judaism that recognizes that there is no authentic Judaism. And that is, if anyone who studied Jewish history and scholarship will see that. Judaism constantly evolved, and if there's one thing that's uniquely and strongly Jewish, it's the ability for Jews to constantly evolve and, and, and do what's needed for the time. Um, but at least the Hasidic community, that's the message they're trying to give, when in reality, Hasidic community today is a life that they are trying to recreate in their minds this hypothetical folk tale of an 18th century utopian or dystopian, depending on your point of view, of <laughs> shtetl life. You know, they have this version of the 18th century where everyone lived in these small Eastern European shtetls, only spoke Yiddish, which, by the way, is fully inaccurate, as we all know. Um, and everyone ate, you know, they could fill the fish in Chaland every Shabbos, and everyone followed all the rules. It never really existed in the homogenous way that they are imagining it today, for anyone who knows European history. But at least this is what they're trying to recreate. In the Hasidic community, there's almost this mythological shtetl existence. When they, they have a word that's called in their heim. How, if you want to know how you really are supposed to do something, you think, and how was it done in their heim, which is back home. They're not talking about Israel. They're talking about Eastern Europe. And, and that is almost this, yeah, dystopian slash utopian version they're trying, that they've been trying to recreate. So what happened was that after the Holocaust, you had a few major, I would say about five in the US and maybe about five in Israel were the big ones, who they didn't really come together. Like there's no Hasidic manifesto. They might be very culty, but they don't have a manifesto. So much of what they're doing 
is just trying to preserve what they are perceiving as the perfect and kind of only way to be Jewish and rebuilding what, they, what, what Hitler destroyed. That part they are obviously uh, right. And that includes having big families. That includes creating an environment and, and as a result turned into their own culture to this extent that if any of you ever go to Brooklyn and you visit Hasidic Williamsburg and Borough Park, you seem like you're on a different planet. They have managed almost impressively to reconstruct something that wasn't necessarily planned. They succeeded beyond their own expectations at recreating them. But this is what happened. And it started mostly in the 1950s. Um, you had, I would say in, in New York, there were probably five biggest ones, the biggest sects are probably like Satmar, Babif, Chabad, Vizhnitz, and New Square, Square. Two of them were actually my uncles, the ones that I just counted. We'll talk more about that later. Hasidic Rebbe's. Who wants to tell me what a Hasidic Rebbe is? Not a rabbi, a Rebbe. Any takers? What is a Rebbe? What is a Hasidic Rebbe? He was a Hasidic Rebbe. But why would you define? When I see him and I see pictures in Rabbi's home, it's like seeing the Pope and the... Someone said the exact same thing last night. I love this. I'm starting to like Phoenix. Yeah. Um, a Rebbe is a one, one description would be a Pope. My, my favorite go-to is an Ayatollah because a Rebbe goes, a Rebbe goes beyond the spiritual leader. A Rebbe is an institutional, communal, spiritual, financial leader. They also call them kingdoms, quite literally. Like during weddings, during big weddings of the Rebbe's grandkids, and there will be huge like, signs in, in, in their synagogue, and they literally call it the kingdom of whatever their sect is. The Rebbe's are kings, and their dynasties work like monarchies, in the sense of it goes from father to son, and they constantly marry each other. By now, they're literally all related in one way or another. Some are really close. You have four of the biggest Hasidic rabbis today that probably combined control, could be as much as a quarter of Hasidic Jews today who belong to rabbinic dynasties, are currently brother-in-laws. So that's the best way to avoid any corruption, right? You keep everything in the family? <laughs> that's how you do it. That is how Hasidic communities, uh, how, and these are all these dynasties. So all these people, whatever it was, Chabad, Rabbi Schneerson, who came from a long dynasty, or whatever it was, Vision, or Baba Vasatmar, they all came from big dynasties. And I think after the war, they actually had to have some talent because it was a free-for-all and people joined new sects. So most of, these, most of the first generation after the war were legitimately, at least had some charisma or terrorist power, but they, they, all had some, they all had something to sell. By now, we are left with their kids and grandkids that are just considered holy because their parents were and their grandparents were. Now, the education system in the Hasidic community, or what I like to say, the lack thereof, consists almost entirely of religious education. Girls tend to have relatively a more general education or secular education than, uh, sorry, girls tend to have more than boys, which doesn't come from a feminist perspective, but quite the opposite. It's ironic, but girls are provided a better secular education because they don't have to study Torah. They don't have to study Judaism, so I might as well. If someone in the family has to be able to read the bills, let it be the woman, kind of. Um, most Hasidic boys that I grew up with couldn't really have a normal conversation in English. We studied ABCs. We, our, our English education probably went to a third grade level. Our math education ended with long division. That's what, third grade, fourth grade? Any teachers in the room? Huh? Yeah, and that's when it ends. And that goes up until eighth grade. After eighth grade, there's just religious education specifically for boys. 
they also only speak Yiddish, which, I mean, they also know Hebrew in the sense of specifically for liturgy, kind of the way Jews studied Hebrew throughout history. There are some people who do speak Hebrew, specifically in Israel, I think most Hasidic people, besides some very anti-Israel in Jerusalem and in other places who refuse to speak Hebrew, most people speak at least nominally. Um, and we grew up with just speaking Yiddish and Hebrew, and I even studied Aramaic. For all intents and purposes, English is my fourth language. And I couldn't have a conversation or read anything in English until I was around 20 when I started doing education on my own. This, that specific detail is actually a good example of something that is entirely new. How many of you have parents, grandparents, great-grandparents from Eastern Europe? Okay. How many of them spoke the local language from where they came from? Whether it was Polish, Russian, Hungarian? Almost all of them. They also all spoke Yiddish, yes. So throughout history, Jews almost everywhere, and that was the same for Ashkenazi Jews and for Sephardic Jews and for Mizrahi Jews, they had their own form of a language. For Ashkenazi Jews, that was Yiddish. For um, Mizrahi Jews, that was Judeo-Arabic or whatever it was and they spoke the local language. My grandparents' generation, all of them spoke either Hungarian or Polish, and they spoke that with each other, but we were not allowed to speak English. It's something that, is, as far as I know from Jewish history, that never existed, where you have people living in a country for third and fourth generations. We're not talking first or second generation immigrants. We're talking third, fourth, or even fifth by now, and they don't, do not speak the local language, at least not in a, in a, in a conversational way. Again, girls tend to speak a better English, also, also not perfect, but better than boys. Boys, I know a lot of them who don't speak any English at all. Now, my very boring personal life, very standard, I'm the sixth child out of 13. I have 12 siblings. Anyone here beat me? <laughs> no one has more than 12 siblings? Tiny families, oh my god. Okay. <laughs> I am the first question mark. For me, I'm just the sixth girl. For my parents, I was the first boy after five girls. I will let you buy my book to read more about that. Quite a few interesting anecdotes around, revolving around that. Now, when I was talking before about the monarchies and how maybe they're corrupt and how it just everything stays in the family, I kind of know what I'm talking about because both of my parents come from rabbinic dynasties. Um, Rabbi Shmuel, you mentioned about Shem Tov, who is kind of the equivalency of, I don't know, Joseph Smith and Mormonism, or like holy, 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 and his descendants constantly marry with other dynasties. My, for anyone who knows Hasidic dynasties, my grandmother was a Tversky, which is by now, they, they are the Habsburgs, for anyone who studied European monarchy, they are the Habsburg of Hasidic Judaism, where literally every Hasidic, almost every, not every, but almost every Hasidic rabbi in the world, from Chabad to Satmar, are, the, are Tversky descendants today. And as I said, they're all related. I don't have a family tree, and my family only have bushes because everyone is related to everyone. My son, my son is my third cousin, quite literally. And also, I'm my own fourth cousin, I think. <laughs> I was engaged at 17, married at 18. My son was born when I was 19. Up to this point, really standard. Uh, 17, 18 is a standard age of engagement in the Hasidic community for both boys. People raised as boys, people raised as girls. And then I was divorced at 21, which that part is not that common. Though the divorce rate is rising, not going to focus on that right now. Now, here's the thing. I want to now kind of dive into a bit to focus a bit on gender and sexuality in the Hasidic community. But here's one thing that I want to make clear. It's very easy to listen to everything that I'm saying and be like, oh my god, these like crazy, radically religious people living these shelters lives. It doesn't apply to us. I think a lot of you might be thinking, okay, yes, this is crazy, but we're doing a lot better. You might be thinking that this doesn't really apply to us in a day-to-day -day life. 
Now here's what I want all of you to think. I'm gonna show a video in a second from Hasidic weddings. It's a combination of two different weddings. Both of them are grandkids of my uncle's, so both of them are my cousin's weddings. They're all happening in Brooklyn. Both of these weddings are happening in the 90s. But think, and then we'll discuss about the, the dynamics of gender and sexuality in that community. And what I see is our ability to use, or my ability, and people who grew up Hasidic, to use our radical experience or the radical notions of gender and sexuality to make a point of how much of that exists in our day-to-day -day life. One of the questions I get asked a lot is what shocked me most about the outside world after I left? And the answer is sexism, the reality of sexism in the day-to-day -day life. Because I legitimately naively expected that there's no reason, if, you don't, if you're not radically religious, why would you be sexist? So much of their understanding of gender and sexuality is a good way to really grasp it and then to start realizing how much of it exists in the so-called secular or progressive world. We'll get to that in a minute. I'm gonna play this video. Any comments? Ideally, one at a time. What? The what? What? What are you talking about? This is the only way I can answer that question. Because the real, the, to really understand the, the gender dynamics and, and how women are perceived, it's not, so in, in reality, these are three sides men, and there is one side of women, like I'm not gonna show it, and also women are not part of the action, as in the men are dancing, the women are not. They're sitting still and, or standing still and just watching. And I will describe in a minute like their understanding of gender and sexuality. But the way women, so for example, there's been, a, in, in, I think in the modern Orthodox world, there's been a lot of, bit of a, a conversation about whatever or not you can ordain women, right? It's a conversation and you got one rabbinical school, two actually, one here, one in Israel that does it and some people like it, some people hate it. It's a conversation. I don't ever remember hearing that word in the Hasidic community, a woman rabbi, like what are you even, it doesn't even cross anyone's mind. No one, I don't remember anyone asking the question by seeing a mitzvotans, which happens at every Hasidic wedding, not with that many people. This is only when it's a royal wedding, but mitzvotans happen at every Hasidic wedding. I never remember anyone asking, why aren't the women dancing? It doesn't even, it's not something that is not done. It just, it's not a conversation. I think, I think a lot about that when I try to describe the culture, the Hasidic culture, and I'm trying to tell people how isolated they are, and I'm like, I think the U.S. doesn't lack religious communities from every religion that probably want to show in pop culture, that don't want their kids to watch certain, certain movies or movies at all or listen to music. That wasn't my childhood. It wasn't like, oh, there's a movie. Let's take, I don't know, what was the most Jewish show of the 90s? Seinfeld, yeah? It wasn't something that I was aware of and being told you can't watch that show. We were simply unaware that it exists. Yeah, we'll do that in a second, yeah. That is kind of the, the cultural and the, when it comes to religious and gender and sexuality. So this part of the wedding is something that is a, when this started back in the 18th century, it was actually what I think a beautiful custom. Because up to that point in most religious weddings, there was no bride and groom dance. There was no, the, the family of the bride or no one, like the, the woman would dance on their own and the, and the men would dance on their own and there was no intermingling whatsoever. And the Hasidic custom based on Kabbalistic ideas, at the end of the wedding, so like usually around midnight, after a wedding would start at four or five in the afternoon, and around midnight after the ceremony, after the meal, and after the dancing, they break down the mechitza, the wall, the, 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 the wall that separates man and woman, and man and woman sit in the same room, not mixed, God forbid, 
And usually it will be one side woman and three sides men. And there's someone who comes up, stands up, and, and, and kind of calls out through like with poetry, which has a beautiful part to it. They call up all the grandparents and parents, or only the men, to dance with the bride. And they can't touch the bride. I mean, in some places, so this specifically, this is actually his granddaughter, and they're not touching. My grandfather actually did like dance, and my father dance like in public and holding hands with a granddaughter, which you are allowed to do by law. But everyone else just either uses a rope or just dances in front of the bride, and that keeps on being repeated. And many families, including my own, the bride will be fully covered, including her face, as that happens. But also what is going on here, and you can see that here as well, where the men are dancing, the women are watching. And usually also, the men are not allowed to even look at the woman, while the women, even if the women are not doing anything, while the women sit and watch the men dance. What that boils down to is their understanding of sexuality where women have no sexual agency whatsoever. In other words, women have no sexual desires. So if any of you here identifies a woman and you think you have sexual desires, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't actually believe that. But that is, that is their kind of perception of how it, and I don't think, I mean, I think people know, like they know in their minds that that's not entirely accurate, but the way it's actually being treated is where women are totally allowed to watch men dance because why not? Men, however, are not allowed to watch women because women are sexual objects. And if a man is going to see a woman dance, they're going to get turned on. And that's going to be whose fault? Give a guess. <laughs> exactly. It's going to be the woman's fault if the man gets turned on, which is why while men are not allowed to look at women, they're definitely not allowed to see them dance. So here you have the bride at her own wedding, and she barely walks around. Now, this sounds radical, maybe. How much of this, though, exists in our day-to-day -day lives? How many times have you heard a woman being blamed for something happened? Oh, yeah, it's still your fault. When we talk about sexuality almost everywhere, we still have these same ideas where, you know, the man is the one who pursues and the woman is just, like, passive. And, like, all of these ideas, so much of it are based on... It's almost impressive that a society that is so segregated and the general society still managed to have the same messed up ideas of gender and sexuality. Now, very briefly to cover um, what, um, how weddings work in the Hasidic community. So people, and I like to use socialized as boys and girls because I don't think that everyone who's being socialized and being raised as a boy is a boy, and everyone is being raised as a girl is a girl, but people who are being socialized in that way don't interact with each other whatsoever. In the previous slide presentation, the title was The Most Gender Segregated Society in North America. I don't say that easily. I always tell that if you can find me a society in North America, community, anything, even a cult that is more gender segregated than the Hasidic community, I'm taking you for coffee. That's all I can offer, but yeah. <laughs> Boys and girls don't even interact. They're not even supposed to talk to each other, specifically once you're above age nine or once you become teenagers. As a result, obviously, just falling in love is not an option or meeting people, but the Hasidic community takes it to a whole new level. They don't even do what's called in the Orthodox world, shidduch dating, where you're being set up and you go on dates. Even that doesn't exist. It's pure, old-fashioned arranged marriages where the parents decide. Unfortunately, almost always, they first match families rather than a couple. And then you just, the, boy, the, the girl in seminary and the boy in yeshiva just being told, hey, come home, you're getting engaged. You meet for a few minutes if your family is nice. Some families don't even do that, and you're engaged. 
The average age of marriage is 18 to 20. If you're, considered, if you're over 20, you're considered old. Uh, like I actually know a family, my, my brother's actually, my, my sister-in-law's family, where if you are a boy that's over 20, they will just take any girl that will be ready to marry them because you can't be over 20. Another very important detail, is it a, is it a question or a clarification? Because let's leave questions to the end. If you don't understand something, I can answer it now. Thank you. Yes. Sorry. You said that. That's Another very important detail is that divorce is extremely frowned upon. Now, the reason why I'm saying this is because I've heard way too many times, not just in Jewish communities, but in Christian communities, or in Muslim communities, and Hindu communities that do arrange marriages where people were like, hey, look, our marriage rate, our marriages are a lot more successful. Now, I think what they call success, I don't think that divorce is any wrong. A divorce, a very important detail to remember about divorce is that it's not ending a successful marriage, it's ending a non-successful marriage. But other than that, people are always like, we have a higher success rate. What's important to realize, though, that if anyone who's a scientist will know that the, the, numbers, the numbers are skewed, because the reality is also that, as far as I can tell, every community that practices arranged marriages also frowns upon divorce. Some communities that don't practice arranged marriage are still frowned upon divorce, but specifically communities that practice arranged marriage. I personally have a lot of married siblings, but how going into details, I think only a very few of them have really what we would call successful marriages. I don't remember ever hearing growing up that two people got divorced because they didn't get along. You only get divorced if you're really fighting or one of them becomes less religious. Now, thankfully, I think it's a good thing. The divorce rate has been going up. It's probably as high as 10 to 15%. It was probably only 1% when I was growing up. They are freaking out. I actually think it's a good thing. But it's important to keep in mind that divorce in the Hasidic community is extremely frowned upon, which ends up having a strong impact on whatever or not people get divorced. Now to the point that was very important to me. LGBTQ people don't exist. At least they didn't. A lot has changed. But when I was growing up, what I mean by they don't exist, they wouldn't hate it. I wish that I had a teacher, I don't know, in third grade that was transphobic or homophobic. I'm not joking. Because at least I would have known that there's other trans people. The first time I found anything that remotely made me realize that maybe there's what I'm feeling is not totally off was when I studied a, Kabbal a Kabbalistic text at age 15. For anyone that was uh, today at the text study, you might have um, read parts of that. I didn't know there are the trans people until I was 20 when I went online for the first time. Simply didn't know it exists. They don't hate. I remember in 2008, I think it was, or 2010, which was the first attempt to legalize gay marriage in New York. It failed then and was legalized a few years after that. But there were some people on the, so there was, then there was like the Catholic Church and some evangelicals that were, that were organizing against it and they were trying to get the Hasidic community to join their fight. And the establishment and the majority of Hasidic people refused to even engage with it. Because that would mean recognizing that these people exist. I used to joke when I started my activism work, I used to say that the day the Hasidic community became, becomes transphobic, I've accomplished my goal, at least the first part of it. Three years later, mission accomplished. Like I've officially, I'm officially demonized, I'm officially evil. There have been a few other trans people who came out. There was, as far as I know, there was no one who grew up Hasidic that came out as trans before I did. There have been a few people since. And we're demonized, they're talking, they, the Hasidic community became transphobic, at least a bit. I think the establishment still doesn't want to engage with it, but almost everyone there knows that it exists, which in a twisted way is a positive development. 
I'm not going to go into a lot to talk about arranged marriage. Sometimes I focus more on it, sometimes less. I would encourage you all to check out this organization called Unchained at Last. It was founded by, um, it was founded by a woman who grew up Hasidic and then left. I actually want to try one thing. How many of you think that child marriage is legal in the US? That's a very small group. So let me bust your bubble. Child marriage is legal in 48 states, including in the District of Columbia, in one way or another. Over 20 states have no limits, no bottom limits whatsoever on the age of marriage. Other states have limits on some. Other states require sign of a judge. But in 48 states and the District of Columbia, in one way or another, child marriage is legal. As in, under the age of 18, you can't drink, you can't drive, you can't, ironically, in most states, you can't even get divorced because you're a minor. You can get married because your parents can marry you, but you can't get divorced. And there's been this amazing organization, and they've already had success in the last few years, just in the last, uh, uh, three years ago, it was legal in all 50 states, and now there's two states, New Jersey and Delaware, to just outlaw it. And they were the first states, and hopefully they're fighting everywhere. It's a great cause, a great organization, a great, a great thing to check out. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. I did that today, but I'm going to do it again. It works magic every time. Can everyone raise their hand? I'm not going to make you swear anything, I promise. Okay. If you think Judaism, also, if you, um, if you have a rabbinical degree, you're not allowed to answer this question. You can put down your hands right now. I don't care. Okay, if not, if you think Judaism only recognizes two genders and not more, just male and female, and by Judaism I mean orthodox, traditional Judaism, Put down your hand. Okay? If you think Judaism only recognizes three genders and not more, you can put down your hand. If you think Judaism recognizes more than five genders, leave your hands up. If not, put it down. I love you. Two, three, how many people we have? I love you all. So here is something to tell you. In the most religious and radical interpretation of it, Judaism recognizes at least six different genders. I haven't found anyone that disagrees with that. I have found people who say that it doesn't maybe apply today or it's something that we don't understand. But the Mishnah, which is a second century rabbinic law code, mentions it tens of times, and the Talmud mentions it hundreds of times, where there are different gender identities. Now, we're going to, I want to quickly kind of study one specific text with you, but I want you to keep in mind not necessarily what they're talking about. This specific text, in all likelihood, refers to something that we would call today intersex. The six main genders, at least, I've seen interpretations where I argue that it's actually eight or ten, but at least six. There's male and female. There's two other ones that in all likelihood refer, nothing is sure, but in all likelihood refer to something that we would call intersex, something that you can tell when someone is born. And then there's two more that are stuff that either happen or is being done to someone intentionally throughout their lives. Good, positive, I'm not going to go into details. I want us to focus on how they look on gender, okay? And androgynous comes from to say it doesn't mean the same thing that we use today, androgyny, that they both come from the same Greek root though. It's like a man in some ways, like a woman in some ways, like both, a man and a woman in some ways, and like neither a man nor a woman in some ways. Rabbi Meyer says, androgynous is a gender category of its own because the rabbis could not decipher whatever they're a man or a woman. However, a tumtum is not so, as at times they're fully male and at times they're fully female, but we can't tell which. 
Did any of you study gender theory in a relatively liberal, took a gender studies class at a university? Okay. One of the things that we, I hear a lot today, and I, my gender studies professor said that at school, which is that, you know, sometimes some people are male, some female, sometimes some people are at times male, at times female, maybe both, maybe none, maybe a different category on its own that doesn't fit into any of it. It's something that we would expect in the 21st century. Forget about Judaism for a second. This was written in the second century, maybe even before that, but definitely in the second century, where people had an understanding that there are some people who don't fit into a straight line, pun intended, of what it means to be male or what it means to be female. There are people who are both, none, different categories. What I think is super powerful is that this is a Mishnah. This is like one of the, one of the basis of Jewish traditions and laws. And, and the part that we need to focus on that I think is extremely powerful to us is to realize not just that this has been a conversation, but we have been around forever. As long as there have been humans, or rather, as long as human since humanity decided to put totally made-up gender roles on people, there have been people who didn't fit into these made-up gender roles. Who wants to play devil's advocate? I'm serious. Please do. So, I only got three answers. What is the worst thing that you have ever heard on why it's wrong to be trans, or what is wrong with trans people? Try me. Hopefully you don't agree with it. If you do, I will throw my shoe at you. But um, anything that you have heard, I don't know, saw, saw every, anything you saw online. And if no one of you have, none of you have ever heard anything negative, I want to know which bubble you live in. Yes, go ahead. It's a breakdown of the nuclear family. It's a breakdown of the nuclear family, yeah. An all-time favorite. You're destroying your family because somehow letting more people get married destroys marriage. I never followed that logic, but yeah. Thank you. Yes, go ahead. It's unnatural. Let's ignore the fact that they are trees and animals that are trans and, and, um, and, um, and gay. But yeah, it's unnatural. It's a very common one. Yeah. They set a bad example. They set a bad example. Yeah. Totally. I'm a terrible example. Yeah. Go ahead. Just using it to use the other person's bathroom. <laughs> because listen, you know, my life was just perfect. And then I decided that I really need to be able to use a woman's bathroom. So I went through hell, physically and emotionally, lost all my friends, lost my family, going through like literally like trans people are legitimately being killed on the streets just so I can use a different bathroom. Totally makes a lot of sense, but yes, it's something that people say. Now one of the, sorry, we're gonna try, I'm gonna try to move ahead, but thank you, yeah. One of the most common things that I have heard is that it can't be real. It's all the media and Hollywood and the influence, because if it's really real, why are there suddenly more trans people than there was 60 years ago? Now, just look at what's happening in the country right now, or look what's happening on social media, to realize even today, with so much awareness, with a majority of Americans, thankfully by now, being at least to some extent accepting of trans people, but to realize how hard it is and to realize why people didn't come out throughout history. A hundred years ago, it was impossible. But the even better answer to that is that trans people are around every, throughout history. And if you know how to look, you will find it. Not as much as you would, we would want to, because first of all, most people didn't say anything, and even the people that you did, not all of them made it. And like, you know, the, the people in power and the people decided to set the tone, they were the ones who decided what is being published and which stories are being told. But you will still find it. And Judaism has quite a few of them. This is one of them. 
This is a poem written by a 13th century Jewish poet by the name of Kleinimus ben Kleinimus. You can look them up. They even have a Wikipedia page. Not many 13th century rabbis have that. So someone who really wrote a lot of poetry, made it into the Jewish canon, wrote a lot of books. This is one of them. Does anyone want to come up and read this part? Anyone? Are you all so terrified of me? I promise I'm not going to do anything to you. <laughs> do you want to do it from there, or you can come up? Whatever you want. Way. Great, take the microphone. What an awful fate for my mother that she bore a son. What a loss of all benefits. Curses be the one who announced to my father, it's a boy. Oh, but had the artisan who made me create me instead a fair woman. Today, I would be wise and insightful. We would weave, my friends and I, and in the moonlight spin our yarn and tell our stories to one another from dusk till midnight. We'd tell of the events of our day, silly things, matters of no consequence. On holidays, I would put on my best jewelry, I would beat on the drum, and my clapping hands would ring. And when I was ready, and the time was right, an excellent youth husband would be my fortune. He would love me, place me on a pedestal, dress me in jewels of gold, earrings, bracelets, necklaces. And on the appointed day, in the season of joy when brides are born, for seven days would the boy increase my delight and gladness. Were I hungry, he would feed me well-needed bread. Were I thirsty, he would quench me with light and dark wine. He would not chastise nor harshly treat me, and my sexual pleasure he would not diminish. Every Shabbat, and each new moon, his head would rest upon my chest. The three husbandly duties he would fulfill, raisin, rations, raiment, and regular intimacy. And the three wifely duties would I also Father in heaven, who the miracles for our ancestors with fire and water, you change the fire of chalady so it would not burn hot. You change Dean in the womb of her mother to a girl. You change the staff to a snake before a million eyes. You change Moses' hand to leprous white and the sea to dry land. In the desert, you turn rock to water, hot flint to a fountain. Who would then turn me from a man to a woman? Were I only to have merited this, being so graced by your goodness, what shall I say? Do I cry or be bitter? If my Father in heaven has decreed upon me and has made me with an immutable deformity, then I do not wish to remove it. And the sorrow of the impossible is a human pain that nothing will cure and for which no comfort can be found. So, I will bear and suffer until I die and wither in the ground. Since I have learned from the tradition that we bless both the good and the bitter, I will bless in a voice, hushed and weak, blessed are you, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. I don't think I need to add anything to that, do I? It's also very personal, and the reason that you, can, you will read more about it in my book, because I used to do, I had when I was nine years old, I also wrote my own prayer that I would say every night before I went to bed. But I still want you to buy my book, so I'm not going to go into more in it. 
Finally, one final text that I want to show you, including the screenshot. So this is something that I showed my dad when I came out to him. It worked enough for him to admit that trans people exist, which I think was an accomplishment for a Hasidic rabbi to admit. He just told me that uh, there's no way for me to know, and I need to have a tzaddik, a holy person who has Ruach HaKodesh, who has the Holy Spirit, to be able to tell me. Otherwise, he can't know. But without going into context, and at times, a female would be in a male body because in the reasons of Gilgal, which is reincarnation, the soul of a female would come to be in a male. Again, you don't need to add a lot to this. This is, an, this is, this is written in the 18th century by a Hasidic rabbi. And they are, we did today a few more of these texts, and online I have 40 source sheets, some of them focused on that, because there are a lot of them. These are not unique, because Judaism, first and foremost, recognized throughout history, but also humanity throughout history. If this was one outlying text or one outlying story, we could have argued, I don't know what it is. But it is in every culture and in many, many ways, even while we were so persecuted. And one thing that that makes very clear is that we were around throughout history. And another thing that I want you all to make sure to take away from it today is that next time anyone tries to tell you that Judaism only recognized two genders or the whole like Adam and Eve crap, you know, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, whatever, you can tell them they don't know what, you're talking, what they're talking about. <laughs> you don't have to be nice to them. I give you permission, unless if you want. Let's move on now. Now, I assume that none of you were forced to be here tonight. Great, which also tells me, which I mean, I don't see shackles, so she wasn't fully forced. It also shows me another thing, that most of you, and I think you all, most of you knew what I'm gonna talk about, so I assume that most of you were at least nominally, you were open to listen, you were open to talk to this. You are now the, most, the people that I probably have to talk about, don't scream on trans people, don't kick them out of, their house, of your house. But that is not enough. I don't like tolerance. I, don't, I do not tolerate LGBT people, I really don't. Because tolerance is meant for food and for lactose or nuts or for, I don't know, vanilla ice cream. Not for humans. People you celebrate. And I think as a community, specifically as a progressive Jewish community, right now, according to Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of salt, but it's quite accurate, 76% of US synagogues are part of movements that have in one way or another openly embraced the LGBTQ community. Which is a good first step, but it's far from enough. Because what we really need to do is move on from tolerating people to celebrating people. We don't tolerate straight weddings, right? As Jews, we know we do a ofriv and a kiddush the week before and all these celebrations. When someone is bar bat mitzvah, you don't tolerate it, they're becoming a teenager, as much as we might barely tolerate it. We, throw, we throw a party, we start celebrating it. When a baby is born, when someone gets a new name, we celebrate it. This has to be our reaction. This has to be how we approach the LGBTQ community. Because let me tell you something, being Jewish and being queer, or being anything and being queer, whatever you are, is beautiful. Uh, a few years ago, sorry, not a few years, last year actually, or maybe a bit more than that, I don't remember exactly, I spoke at the Lions of Judah conference in Florida. Do any of you know what Lions of Judah is? So it's the, uh, a group of, I think it's mostly all women, right? Yes. Yeah? That, that donate to federations. And there's a week, uh, yearly gathering. English is my fourth language, so you can't complain when I 
Um, and I was talking, and there were 1,500 women there, and we did two separate sessions that are referring so I can interact with as many people possible. One of the questions that constantly come up, specifically from Alliance of Judah Conference tend to be at least lay leaders, and anything from lay leaders to executives of Jewish organizations. And one of the questions that come up a lot is, how do we get young people to stay involved in Jewish communities? I think any Jewish professional has heard that question. And one of my go-to answers is, host a Pride Shabbat. Now, besides the fact that I think Pride Shabbat, which is where you, a Shabbat dinner where you celebrate LGBT, it's quite a popular thing that a lot of people do. I don't think it's enough, and I actually don't love communities that year-round they are tolerant, bordering on not-so-tolerant LGBT people, and then suddenly in June they're hosting a Pride Shabbat. It's better than nothing, but it's not ideal. But I, when I say to the people, it's not just because it's a morally right thing to do. Statistically, and I've seen it happen, it's a good way of getting people in the door. Because for a lot of people, young people my age and younger than me, it almost becomes a litmus test. They want to know if this is a good Jewish community. How do they approach the LGBT community? For some people, it's also refugees or other ideas on how to tell. And being queer and being Jewish is a way of telling people we are not just proudly Jewish, but we're also going to accept you and celebrate for who you are. And the same thing not just in Judaism. I'm part of an alliance of, of clergy called Trans Fate which are trans, either transgender um, clergy from across religions. We literally have people who are, we have rabbis, we have priests, we have imams, we have uh, monks, we have literally everything from every um, denomination. And it's a sentiment that we get a lot. In today's world, that really works because it really enhances the community. And I'm not just talking about it. I'm almost done. We're going to open to Q&A. Don't worry. I actually... Did it? it really worked last night. Let's try it again. How many of you had a bat mitzvah? How many of you had a bar mitzvah? How many of you had boat? <laughs> I had more parties than all of you. <laughs> and I want to show you a video. It's, only, it's, it's about half an hour long, the whole thing, and it's on YouTube, but this is only about five minutes of it or four minutes of it. And the reason why I think it's so important Several things, but most importantly, it's an example of what is possible and what is already happening in some communities. And if anyone looks at this and you see anything other than beautiful, I think something might be wrong with you. I'm not, I'm not saying I don't judge easily, but yeah. In our tradition, leaving Egypt wasn't an historical event alone. Whenever we leave a narrow place, a place of restriction, painful servitude, a place where we are not authentically who we are, that leave-taking, that transitioning is an exodus. It's a freedom walk. And so at this moment, we have risen, we have stood now in order to, to be in community with our very dear, dear, dear friend and member and teacher who will make a blessing of transition and walk slowly through this space, this narrow space. We turn to face. Oh. 
this morning. One who has come forward to receive a new name in our tradition to be known, the Israel, to be known amongst this community and all communities. As Abigail Chava, Abbas Menachem Mendel, the Chaya Shengel. Abigail Chava. May the merit of all those who have walked from a narrow place into an expansive place be with you. May, may the signature of the one who is known as Emmet, the one who is known as Truth, be with you as you have now embraced. First to yourself and now in Kahaladas amongst those who love you and know you. We embrace the truth of who you are and the joy of who you are. Abigail, I'm going to skip ahead because I'm going to have some time for Q&A. We only have 15 minutes left. Quickly, I'm not going to focus on it, some of the media that I've done. Sometimes if I have more time, I focus a bit on the way the media talks about Jews, the way the media talks about Hasidic Judaism, about gender, but we're running out of time. These are my three pointers that I hope what we can all take away tonight. You're not alone, and that is extremely powerful. And it's a message that... Every person has to know, not just about gender and about sexuality. It's about everything, from as simple as the kind of clothes that you like to an experience that you might have. There are people who are out there to help you, to support you, whatever it's you yourself or family members or friends. You don't have to go through any of this alone. You can do it. I sometimes wish that someone would have told me that when I was 15 or 20, or even when I started transitioning. It's not easy. I'm not going to lie to anyone. Whatever is coming out and whatever it's anywhere in the LGBTQ spectrum, whatever is transitioning, it's a lot, but it's very possible. And with the right support, 
and with hopefully the help of each and every one of this room doing more to be better and to celebrate people, it's very possible. And then, importantly for all of us, we can do it. When I talk about celebration, it's, it's, a possi it's, it's possible, and you saw that it's possible. I'm not some stupid idealist that has this weird idea in my head that people would just accept everyone. It's possible, I've seen it happening. Unfortunately, and not everywhere and in only chosen communities, but it's, it's a strong possibility. And we can all do our part to make that happen. Each and every one of you can do something from as simple as speaking up when you hear people say something that is homophobic or transphobic, to sharing something that you might think has no power on social media. You have no idea when there could be someone in the corner who is watching and waiting to see who might be a supportive person, specifically if you might live in a community where that's not a given, that's not the default. I'm not asking all of you to give up your jobs tomorrow and just this is all you should do, though if you want to, come talk to me, I have a lot of resources for you. But I'm saying we can all speak up more. Whatever it is, that creepy statement that a family member or a friend makes at Thanksgiving or the Seder, or something that you see online, speaking up, even if, even if you think that no one is listening to you, even if you feel like you're in a setting where everyone in the room is gonna disagree with you, there's always people, or there might be someone who is listening quietly and waiting to see if someone is gonna speak up for them. And until that happens, I'm refusing to shut up. <laughs> I'm not gonna focus a lot on this. It's not as radical as it sounds, I just like the hashtag, but also, if I have more time, I would, I, I would love to share more, but I don't, um, to focus on sexism and how hot it is. And, and, and very quickly, I know for me, when I started experiencing catcalling in New York City, I think anyone who's been a woman in New York City and just walk down the streets know what I, knows what I'm talking about. And for me, and the first time I started experiencing it, and the first time was just like at a few months after I transitioned, I was like, okay, fine, maybe it's a one-time thing. It's almost a daily thing, and it happens everywhere. I have been to, this year alone, to 10 countries. Fairly certain I've been catcalled in all 10 of them. And when I talk to girls who were, being, who were socialized with that, almost everyone has this almost like giving up of like, yeah, it's a fact of life, but it shouldn't be. And I know, I don't know how many people could say, but I've experienced this from both sides. And when people try to tell me, specifically during the Me Too movement, everyone was like, it's not as bad as you're trying to make, not everyone, some people, it's not as bad as you're trying to make it. And I agree, it's not as bad as you're trying to make it. It's a lot worse. It's, sometimes I feel, which is kind of weird, but, but even in progressive places, like, I feel like in New York, people are more afraid to be transphobic and to be sexist. I sometimes think if I would wear a big sign, hey, I'm trans, I would get cackled less, which is messed up, but it's a reality. For some reason, some people just think that it's totally fine, and I don't have an answer to it. I just felt like sharing it a bit. Let's talk about questions for a second before I open it up to questions. Anyone in the room who identifies as straight you feel really comfortable coming up here and being like, you're straight. Nothing wrong with it, don't worry, I'm not gonna. It's beautiful. Anyone who wants to come up here and say you're straight? No, right. Hi, Hello. I'm Abby. Hey, I'm Mike. Great meeting you, Mike. Nice to meet you. What are your sexuality? Straight. Are you sure about that? No. <laughs> this is not going the way I was hoping. Okay, 
How old were you when you realized you were straight? When did you come out? <laughs> were your parents okay with you when you came out? <laughs> how, how, how do you do it? Like, how do you like, have like, sex? Like, how does it work? <laughs> Are you, like, maybe you just haven't met the right guy yet? Well, my son is I think paid. we're good, thank you. <laughs> but I think everyone got the message. I sounded ridiculous, maybe. I think it is ridiculous. But sometimes, I'm not talking to anyone specifically, but sometimes some of you sound like this. People ask me a lot, which kind of questions could I ask trans people or gay people? And the, usually the rule is, if you wouldn't ask it from a straight person, don't ask it from a gay person. If you wouldn't ask it from a cisgender person, <laughs> someone who's not trans, don't ask it from a trans person. And the same goes for everything. If you want to, you talk to immigrants, think about would you ask that to someone who is a, a, uh, not an immigrant, and so on. The, so, the same goes to race, and the same goes to so, a lot of other things. Tonight, however, I'm here to have a conversation. I know Rabbi Shmuley said that in the beginning, if you have silly questions, you can ask it. I mean it. You can ask me anything, but also keep in mind that I don't have to answer everything. I don't have a lot of red lines, but when I do, please don't get insulted. It's nothing personal. There are some things that I don't want to talk about. One final thing, because my publicist would kill me if I don't do that. Here's a link to the book and to my social media and to my online presence. I'm very stalkable online. Feel free to be in touch. You can buy the book. You can buy it on Amazon and Walmart if you want to be evil, in my opinion, or you can buy it on IndieBound or a lot of independent bookstores. Wherever you want, you can pre-order it. Now let's do questions. Just going to go random. I promise you, I love you all. I'm just casually going to pick people all around the room. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Marriage. Did that describe your, did you know your wife at all? I knew her family because we were third cousins, but um, I did not know her, never met her before. We met, we spoke for a few minutes, and we were engaged. And then you're not allowed to talk between engagement and marriage. And a year, more than a year after that, we just got married. And then you're supposed to uh, do it, so to speak, on the first night with a person that you barely know. But yeah, that how, that's how it works. And then I assume that... Well, I don't assume anything. So, and then you got divorced, and... That was two and a half years later. Did, um... Let's talk about that in private. Okay. <laughs> okay, yeah. Go ahead. So, piggybacking on that, do you have a relationship with your son and the mother of your son? Thanks for the question. Um, my son's life is private. My son's life is private. My go-to is when he turns 18, he can become a model, a rabbi, a priest, uh, go to the military, go to the moon. I, I, whatever he makes him happy, he can do. Until then, his life is private. I'm not going to talk about my relationship. But thank you. I'm not going to talk about it. Um, on a personal note, I have a transgender daughter-in-law who is lovely, but has a terrible time buying shoes. What did you think of Kinky Boots? <laughs> so here's the thing. Relatively to a lot of trans women, I'm kind of privileged because I, was always, I always had a relatively petite figure, and a lot of people have issues buying shoes. I never had that. My shoes are kind of average for women in general. So um, uh, kiki boots, I, I don't know. I've never tried them. What are you, what, oh, to play. I thought you were talking about actual boots. Okay. No. I have no idea what that is. Okay, great. <laughs> Moving on. I grew up without pop culture. I still have trouble no, catching up. No, Thank you. Great. 
Um, I do have a relationship with two of my siblings, uh, which is great, and about 10 or 15 of my first cousins. And the way I like to look at it, yes, I have 12 siblings and a few hundred first cousins, and so maybe it's a very small minority, that's it. but I look on the silver lining, which is most people my age don't have more than two siblings or 10 cousins. Most people don't even have 10 first cousins. So there's a positive part to it. Also, talking about my family, I, I just connected about a year ago with a whole branch of my dad's side of the family, second and third cousins, that I was told that their grandfather, who was my great-grandfather's brother, just died in the war and had no kids. And I strongly suspected and intentionally said that because he and his kids became secular and live in Israel. But I connected with them over the summer, spent Shabbat with them, and got to know all of them. And it's really amazing. And I assume you don't go back to the community? Back, back? Not really. I mean, I visit Williamsburg sometimes, but not, not as a member of the community. No. They wouldn't take me even if I want to. Yes, go ahead. Oh, I love holidays. Follow me on Instagram, you'll see. The high holidays are coming up. I love cooking the food. I love, I love holidays in general. I think they're beautiful. Regardless of how religious you are or not, they are beautiful. And, and I find spiritual meaning in them as well. I think one of the most powerful things that I, people ask me a lot if I believe in God. And usually my go-to answer to that is first define God, because I don't think that's a yes or no question. But also, I believe or relate to Judaism more than God, which is, I think a lot of people have that experience, but specifically when it comes to life cycle and year cycle, I think Judaism has a very strong message there. And, and holidays have this, you can look at it in a spiritual way or just a psychological way. It's really cool to like break up the year and then you just take two days off and you celebrate with family and community. And growing up, I hate some, there were some holidays that I hated, like Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. I did not like it growing up. And now I love it because I have a community of my own choosing. I get to celebrate with people. Um, and I love Hasidic, like, like Eastern European Ashkenazi food. So with all the fat and unhealthy, it's just too good not to love it. Um, <laughs> so if any of you want, you can follow me on Instagram. You will see I, kind of, I post pictures in my Insta stories and I love cooking. It's, it's great. Yes. I also kind of, I'm one of these people who stress cook. I don't stress eat. I stress cook. Uh, which is another conversation. Yeah. Yes, go ahead. Um, the video you showed, um, which one? The last one of your bar yeah. mitzvah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, bar mitzvah, name so, it. I grew up in a more conservative, and so I didn't have a bar mitzvah. But conservative, I, capital C conservative, or lower C conservative? Don't know. <laughs> okay. Holocaust survivor parents who did what they wanted okay. to do. My brother had a bar mitzvah, I didn't. Okay. That's the sexism, right? Yeah. But, Yeah. So that's the uniform we've allowed women as we progress women yeah. into religion. So how do you see yourself in a practicing Yeah. Community? So this synagogue, this was happened, which is Roma Mu, a Jewish renewal community on the Upper West Side. It's an amazing community. If any of you are ever at Shabbat in Manhattan, Friday night or Shabbat morning, it's really beautiful, musical, and an amazing community. So we actually have full equality in the sense of there are some men who wear kippahs and some men who don't, some men who wear talit, some men who don't, the same with women. There's, there's that sense. Me personally, it is one of the things, I don't have a lot of issues, but I kind of get chills almost every time I try to put it on. I'm like waiting for this. I think, I think with time I've been looking at like maybe, I don't know, buying a rainbow flag and turn it into a talit and see how I feel with that or something like that. I haven't, for now I feel just comfortable just the way it is. Yeah. Go ahead. So it seems like you made huge transitions relatively quickly. Yeah, you know, it's been almost eight years, but yeah. Life, yeah. Just that in general was a huge 
yeah. transition and then um, you know, making your gender transition. What kind of support did you have? So I had actually, I was really lucky. Um, I had Footsteps, that someone mentioned before, which is an amazing nonprofit. You can all check it out. Their website is footstepsorg.org. Always point that out because it gets confusing. So double org. They are an amazing uh, Jewish nonprofit based in, in New York that is helping people who are leaving the old Georgia Dex community. They don't make people leave, but for people who want to leave, there's similar sister organizations in Canada, in the UK, and in, in the EU, and Israel, and so on, in Australia, almost everywhere. Um, they have been really amazingly helpful from everything from social to helping me with education, scholarships, and building community, and so on. Um, with, uh, with uh, transition, I got a lot of support from the LGBT center in, in the West Village in New York. And I think every major city in the US has an LGBT center. Um, thankfully, New York has three trans health clinics, which have been uh, really amazing and helpful. I mean, the New York insurance is also really good in the sense that they're legally obligated to cover everything, which I also know is unique. It's not an, it's, there's more and more states that do that, but it's not everywhere. I assume here that's probably not a requirement and it's up to the insurance if they want to cover it or not. Um, but um, yeah, so I, I, was, I was really lucky and there's a lot of Jewish LGBT organizations. There's Keshet, which is a national um, Jewish LGBT support group that has been really helpful and, and so on. Yes, I have on my website, there's a tab with some of the resources kind of links to the organizations that I got help from. Yes, go ahead. Oh, the march? Yeah, and I just wanted to know what your feelings were about that. Were you part of it? Yeah. You, are you helping anybody over there? So the, one of the women, her name is Molly Miles, the, the, the kind of the girl that it's almost, it was her brainchild, and she like arranged everything. I'm, I've, we've been friends for quite some time. Um, she actually tried to invite me twice already to um, speak at Stern College, which is the wise college for women, and somehow it hasn't happened. Um, I think there were some people in the administration that didn't like it. Um, I think it's amazing. It's, it's really, I mean, I personally don't identify as Orthodox anymore, um, I, but I do have still a lot of friends and a lot of stake in it. It's still, it will always be kind of part of who I am. Um, and I think it's extremely powerful. Um, it's great that this conversation is happening. I'm waiting and I'm afraid I will have to wait 50 years, but I'm waiting for this to happen at my yeshiva, in the Catskills, this, where I went, and, and in other places. But it, I think it's a very positive. Unfortunately, most of the students and most of the administration at YU is very, was, has been very far from supportive, but it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. Is there a difference between trans and intersex? Very much. Um, uh, very briefly, intersex is something that is um, biological in the sense of something that you can test. And to, though, to be honest, the numbers, are, the numbers of intersex people are very high, contrary to what people believe. Uh, most intersex people wouldn't know. Only one out of 1,000 babies, I think, born would know. But according to some doctors and some uh, articles I've read, it's as high as one out of 50 children, so 2% of the population that has one form, some sense of intersex where their bodies biologically don't add up to what 98% of population, uh, population does. In other words, what we consider even biologically as being male or female is not, doesn't work for everyone, as, versus trans is more is an identity. Um, something that people feel. There's some trans people that have, will have something with their, even without them doing anything, but most don't. It's a different, one is biological, one is an identity, one is social, yes. 
camp outside of uh, San Francisco, a Jewish uh, overnight camp that now has a cabin dedicated to... Ramah? No, no, it's, it's called Tamarack. There's a lot of them who do that. Mm -hmm. uh, but by now, there's a lot of camps, yeah. Are there a lot of Jewish camps and other... Yeah, other it's camps. growing. Um, I worked at Jewish camps for quite some time. I worked at Ramah. I worked at Eden Village, which is a, a camp in... Um, used to be on the East Coast, now it's on the West Coast. Um, yeah, it's growing. I've done... I've consulted with a lot of camps, the camp directors and counselors, and, and, and walked them through it. It's, we're going in the right direction when it comes to that, yes, definitely. Actually, yeah, just yesterday, there was um, at the event um, with the Federation, there was actually a, uh, someone who walked, a, a family that came up, and they have a son that has also transitioned, and, and they've been talking about like them going through the same thing with their camp, yes. Yeah. Um, one more question. Can we do one more question? Two more? Why are we doing time-wise? Two, two. two it is. Okay. Go ahead. such a narrow community that you were even able to find a way to even find out about these organizations. I mean, I know you said that yeah. it helped you a lot, but how were you even able to Actually, get Actually, an interesting story, um, how I got. So I, the only thing that I knew that is out there was the internet. And I only knew about the internet because we were constantly told what not to do. And I knew how Wi-Fi works because we were told that if you are buying a tablet, which is kind of okay if it's not connected to the internet, you still need to take it into the community organization to make it kosher, to make sure you don't connect. So I knew how everything worked. And I literally got, a, got online for the first time, and I Googled if a boy can turn into a girl. And that's how I started learning about everything. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible story. Okay, one final question. Anyone? Go ahead. I was never a man, but yeah, okay. presenting so, yeah. So how's Saul's touching? I'm curious to know if um, you see Torah through the lens of Saul's Jewish heritage, and then how you Definitely. Um, I do a lot. I do a lot of, I do still love text, and I have online on the web, there's a website called Sepharia, S-E-F-A-R-I-A.org. It's a great website for anyone who has any interest in Jewish text or culture. There's a lot of amazing things. You have people there making source sheets. They have, I think, around 200,000 source sheets, and you get from ultra-Orthodox people to totally secular cultural Jews doing amazing work on there. And I, if you look, just look up my name there, I have about 40 different source sheets. Um, I definitely came to, I went from believing that the Torah was all written by God and is all accurate to being like, this is all made up and nothing is interesting, to being like, this is human, this is a human condition. These are texts that our people and people for thousands of years have been going through, and I, and I really, I really came to appreciate it, and I think they're beautiful, and definitely I have, I think, I think when we read something, whatever it's a religious text or a secular text or a book or, I don't know, Harry Potter or the Bible, we always bring our own experiences into that. So obviously they have changed a lot. I'm hoping one day, uh, depending on how this book does, to eventually get around to write more, uh, a book based more on my textual experiences. Thank you all so much. Um, Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. 
please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.